So today we continue in our series called Be the Church. Uh, if you were here last week, John Compton talked about the church as being an unstoppable force for good in this world. The week before that, uh, I talked about evangelism, about how God calls us to be fishers of people. Today, I want to talk about the flip side of that same coin of evangelism it is something that we call justice, or the Bible calls justice. Uh, and so to begin with, I want to start off with uh, reading a portion of scripture found in the book of Amos. If you would all stand together as we read the word and, and honor uh, his words to us. And in this passage, God has some harsh words for his people. Um, and, and he speaks through the prophet Isaiah to his people, and he begins by saying this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offer offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And he, said, he, he explains the reason why. But let justice roll down like a mighty river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I'm going to start off with uh, the one main point that I'm going to try to make a dozen times in, in that many different ways right from the get-go. So he, here's the entire point of this message, and it's this. There is a distinct correlation between a person's experience of God's grace and his or her heart for justice. That means if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus and do not have a heart for the poor, the marginalized and the oppressed, that means that your experience of his grace is either shallow at best or completely counterfeit at worst. That is the one point for today. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Now, I want to take a step back and, and, and kind of look at some of the shifting tensions uh, of this whole idea of social justice as it relates to the history of the, uh, the American church. Now, between the, uh, throughout the 20th century, the American church divided, uh, divided itself pretty neatly between uh, liberal mainline churches that emphasized uh, social justice and conservative evangelical churches that focused on evangelism. And this division, this dichotomy, was the hallmark of the American church throughout the 20th century. At the turn of this century, though, that division, that dichotomy, has begun to fade. And, and early signs of that fading uh, could be seen in, in such things as the founding of relief organ Christian relief organizations like World Vision, for example, in the 1950s, they helped evangelicals move beyond exclusive concern for just spiritual alienation to add also a concern for physical deprivation as well around the world. Churches began to speak of taking the whole gospel to the whole world and issued a deeper understanding of the kingdom of God. More recent engagement with justice is also represented by the founding of International Justice Mission, uh, um, IJM has drawn attention to the millions of women and children, millions of people who suffer at the hands of oppressors, sex trafficking, human slavery, child prostitution, and many of the crimes that are perpetuated against the weakest and poorest throughout the world. 
Now, even with these changes, even with this coming together uh, of liberal mainline and conservative evangelicals, uh, the fading of this dichotomy has not by no, has, hasn't been welcomed by all evangelicals, right? For those who defend like an essential division of, and prioritization of evangelism over social justice, these changes, this coming together is actually a sign of what they would call a liberal drift or a slippery slope uh, leading people away from the central call of salvation. And they insist that emphasizing justice means putting second-order concerns over first-order priorities. They believe that uh, an emphasis on justice makes too much of this world and not enough of the world to come. And, and so uh, you may hear people say something like, you know, it treats the, uh, the, the uh, symptoms, uh, social symptoms like poverty and, and all that, but not the spiritual root of suffering. Now, matters of justice, they would argue, are, are a distraction of the most urgent task that we have, which is saving souls. And therefore, they may imply that we are losing the gospel. But... I want, us to I want us to consider, are we really losing the gospel or are we rediscovering it in more full and holistic ways, right? Is justice a slippery slope or is justice, as the prophet Amos calls it, a mighty river that flows down, right? Because there are other evangelicals, and I think many of us fit into this category, who vigorously affirm the, the need to engage issues of justice as a recovery of an aspect of the gospel of Jesus. And that Christians for too long have forgotten or neglected or even worse, wholesale rejected the emphasis on social justice. And they, and, and they would argue, we would argue, that uh, justice is not simply a pragmatic bridge to, building a, uh, uh, to, to create an opportunity to present an otherwise spiritual gospel, right? Rather, the gospel really creates change, not just spiritually, but in so many other areas, physically, emotionally. And so justice, we would say, is as inseparable from the gospel as truth is from grace. It means that the gospel of Jesus Christ encompasses God's response to every human experience and need that we see. And any view that implies that injustice is inconsequential to God or to the priorities of God's people would be biblically invalid. And so sometimes I get asked by, especially newcomers, so is Grace Ann Arbor a, a liberal mainline church or an evangelical conservative church? And I often answer that question with yes. Uh, we are a church that is for the city. We are a church no, that is not here to throw stones at our culture. We are not, at the same time, not here to become like the culture. We are here to be the very presence of Christ in this world and in culture. And so grace, God's grace rightly experienced, is not just for ourselves. It has to extend as we experience it and overflows to our neighbors, to our city, to our county, to our nation, and to the world. And that includes not just spiritual redemption, but cultural renewal, uh, addressing physical and social issues as well. So much so that I would say, especially when you read through the Old Testament and even New Testament, the entire Bible, justice is a requirement of those who follow Jesus. Now, think about the word requirements. Uh, what are requirements? Requirements mean that uh, they are absolute, 
absolutely necessary uh, component of something, right? You have to do them. There's no way to get around it. So for example, when you get a driver's license, there are certain requirements in order to obtain one, right? So in the state of Michigan, you have to be how old? 16? Yeah, I, I said 18 last, uh, last service, and I had a bunch of people, especially teenagers, are like, no, actually, I, uh, it's 16. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, six, you, have to be, you have to be 16. You have to be a resident of Michigan. You have to pass a vision test, a written test, and a driving test. These are the requirements. There are no arguments. There's no discussion. There are no exceptions. Right? Or if you want to travel internationally, it is required that you have a valid passport or visa. That is the requirement, and there is no way around it. Now, given that, it's really interesting that the prophet Micah, he says this, and again, uh, he begins by uh, speaking for God, and again, um, rebuking the complacency of God's people in worship, and he says, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And he says, He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord, what's this word? Require. Not desire, not suggest. But this is what the Lord requires of you, but what? To and and the text says to do justice and to love kindness, which may seem at first glance to be two separate things, but they're actually not. The Hebrew term for the word um, mercy is hesed. Can you repeat that with me? Hesed, right? Uh, we support and partner with a church down in Detroit, Brightmoor neighborhood. Uh, Nate Bull is the pastor there, and the name of the ministry house is called Hesed, right? House of mercy, loving kindness and compassion. The word for justice in Hebrew is mishpat. Can you repeat that? Mishpat. Don't you feel smarter already? <laughs> Right? The Bible scholar, Bruce Walkey, says this, that's really interesting about Micah 6, 8. Mishpat puts the emphasis on the action. Hesed puts it on the attitude or, the, or motive behind the action. In other words, what he's saying is, is exactly that, right? Mishpat and, and hesed are not two separate things. They are one in the same. One is the posture and the motive. The other is the action, right? So to walk with God, then, we must do justice why? Out of a sense of loving kindness and mercy. Merciful love is why we do it. And so again, making the same point that I made in the very beginning, uh, Micah uh, tells us this, you cannot walk humbly with God without doing justice and loving mercy. It is impossible. It is a requirement of walking humbly with God that you do justice and love mercy. That's, now, let me take that and flip it around and go, take a little shift here because I think the uh, prophet Micah also says this. At the same time, you cannot do justice and love mercy without walking humbly with God. Now, I'm not saying that non-Christians uh, can't do justice and love mercy, etc. 
But uh, what I am saying is, unless doing justice is rooted in the experience of God's grace, the current social justice wave will, will somehow, will at some point be replaced with some other temporary fad, right? It'll fade from, from our, our, our radar. In fact, I think if, if it's not rooted in our experience of God's grace, what will happen with social justice is, remember 20, 30 years ago when, when we, uh, society experienced like compassion fatigue? I think we would experience justice fatigue. We're bombarded with so many injustices that we start to get so tired and overwhelmed. And, we, uh, and uh, especially as we move into the like, next stages of life for some of us. And so the prophet Micah is saying, look, they intertwine with each other like threads on a rope. Doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with God, they are one in the same. Now, one thing I want to talk about is, is as we become the very presence of Christ in our world, giving to the poor, feeding the homeless, seeking justice for the oppressed, or pursuing racial reconciliation, we have to ask ourselves, why do we do all of those things? Why do we do all that we do? I think a number of reasons, good reasons, uh, that we, 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 uh, we do some of these things, but I think ultimately inadequate reasons Right? So, for example, we do not give to the poor because they do not have as much as we do. Okay? Economic equality is not an adequate reason to give to the poor because there is no correlation because, between how much you have and how much they don't have and what you should do for them. There's no, correla- I mean, there's no logical correlation. There is an emotional correlation, but not a logical one. So economic equality is not a sufficient reason to give to the poor. Right? We do not feed the homeless because it makes us feel good. Personal gratification is not an adequate reason to serve those in need. Besides, there are a lot more things that require a lot less time and energy and inconvenience that gives me a lot more personal gratification than serving other people. Right? So feeding the homeless, doing justice, it's not because it just makes us feel good. We do not seek justice for the oppressed because it will make a difference. And I know this is a huge thing that many people say. Well, it makes a difference, right? Missional impact is not an adequate reason to defend the cause of the fatherless and to plead the case of the widow. Finally, I would say we do not pursue racial reconciliation as reparation for past misdeeds. Repaying the sins of our fathers is not an adequate reason to fight against racism. Social justice and racial reconciliation that is not rooted in God's covenant relationship with his people, in my opinion, neither brings true justice nor real reconciliation. Maybe at a surface level, but not deeper than that. Now, disclaimer here. These may be some of the results of doing justice, but they are not the reason why we do justice. Does that make sense? All two of you. Okay, great then why do we do what we do? Most of you are like, I don't care. <laughs> Hope not, right? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you the reason, and then we're going to look at a picture found in Genesis chapter 15. So let me just give you the reason. We do not do what we, we do what we do, not because there is a need in the world, not because it makes us feel good, and not because it will make a difference in the world. We do what we do because it reflects the character and heart of God. In other words, right, sounds like a Sunday school answer, because of Jesus. 
Now, what I want to do is take a deeper dive into a picture to illustrate this is the character and heart of God because, again, I I think it just wouldn't do any good for us to say, well, because of Jesus, right? That's like a very superficial answer. So Genesis chapter 15, I I think one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I say that about several chapters, but today this is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. Um, here, uh, and here's a little picture, a sketch I found uh, of what happens in that story. But let me just tell you that story a little bit. God instructs Abram to kill some animals, right? Cut them into pieces and arrange them in two rows with an aisle so that Abram could walk through them, right? In those days, I mean, to us that sounds kind of weird, but in those days, this was considered a regular custom and an official ceremony when a Lord wanted to make a covenant or a promise with a servant, and the servant, it would be a legally binding oath. As the servant walked between the pieces, he would make an oath to his master, and he was acting out basically what was called the curse of the covenant. In other words, I'm making this oath, And may I be torn into pieces, split in half, like these animals, if I do not keep the terms of the covenant that I'm making to you today, my master. So Abram figures, you know, God tells him to arrange the pieces, that he is going to be walking through through the center aisle, making this covenant. What happens instead is darkness descends, and uh, as darkness descends, uh, a, a flaming torch, symbolizing the presence of God, instead walks through the pieces, and, and then th- that vision ends. Uh, the implication here is this. God is saying to Abraham, look, I made a covenant with you. I'm going to bless you, and through you, you're going to bless all the nations. And now I have sworn, and I've made this oath, of uh, this covenant, that may I be torn to pieces if I do not fulfill that promise to you today, my servant Abraham. Abraham is stunned because, first of all, it was God who went through the, piece, through the pieces. Lords never walked through the pieces. It was only the servant that made that oath. And secondly, Abram himself was never called to walk through the center. The ceremony ends, and God makes a covenant with Abram. And this has huge implications. In effect, God is saying to Abram, look, may I be torn to pieces if I do not bless you and keep my promise to you, Abraham. But more than that, may I be torn to pieces if you do not fulfill the terms of this covenant, if you do not always obey me. Right, and that's exactly what God does. He keeps that covenant because centuries later, what happens? Jesus is on the cross. He's being torn to pieces, literally, whips and nails. And why? Because he was taking on the curse of the covenant on the cross, which is why Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took on the curse. He redeems us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us through Christ Jesus. Later on, he says to the church in Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so uh, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is all a picture of God's heart and his character. 
I only point that out because, again, it is this gospel picture that, again, helps us realize we do what we do, social justice, acts of good deeds, not because there's a need in the world, not because it makes us feel good, not because it will make a difference in the world. We do what we do because it reflects the nature and the heart and the character of God in this world. Social justice is not a program of the church. It is a passion that God has for this beautiful world that he created that is now broken by sin, which he will one day come again to reclaim and restore. So given the light of the fact that we are called to justice and that we are called to walk humbly with God, let me just make a few comments in these closing moments about the events in Charlottesville that happened last weekend. I wasn't here last weekend to speak to it. I know John Compton spoke briefly about it. But let me just say this. I think some, some action points that, that I've prayed through and reflected on that I think might be helpful for all of us. It's been really helpful for me. First action point, I think, is certainly to speak out, right? We condemn the cowardly actions of those who promote hatred, bigotry, prejudice, fear, racism, national superiority, any of those things, right? All those things are antithetical to the good news of Jesus Christ, even though some of those very people are doing this in the name of Jesus. It grieves the heart of God. And so we must speak out against it. it is, we must name evil as evil, sin as sin. However, let me just say this too. Words of condemnation will never be enough. We cannot mistake our feelings of moral outrage or the fact that we posted something on social media as being equivalent of actually doing justice. Change will take more than just words or social media posts, but it starts with speaking out. I think another thing we need to do is cry out. I think there's two aspects of this. One uh, meaning pray. Well, the first aspect of this is really to repent. What seems to be an issue uh, of differences uh, 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 like uh, based on outward appearance is actually uh, an inward sickness of the heart. Right? We are called to search our own hearts and to repent of our own biases. Right? I, I don't know about you, but it's really easy when we see people hate like that. Our response is moral outrage, and then we begin to hate the haters. Isn't that super easy, right? You hate the haters instead of saying, you know what? These people are acting out the very seeds that are in my own heart. Biases, prejudices, hatred. And the people who actually tell me, no, I'm not biased, I'm not prejudiced. I think, man, you're the most prejudiced and biased, right? So repentance. But also, I think crying out also means interceding and praying. How many of us have actually prayed for the people marching or some of the leaders in that alt-right movement, right? No, I mean, instead, we just hate the haters. How many of us have actually prayed for them? That God would open their eyes from false teachings and that God would open their hearts. We must pray for not, not only them, but we must pray for the courage of our, our leaders, the unity of our community, and the witness of our churches. So cry out. Thirdly, I would say reach out. My prayer without action isn't enough. We have to extend our hand across the table, both personally and corporately. 
That means we have to create relationships with people who don't look like us and who don't believe like us. How many of your friends or closest friends or people in your community group are people who believe exactly like you do? Right? That's not a good sign there. Reach out. That means we must engage the world with the love of Christ, being God's agent of, and demonstration of his love to the world reaching across the table to other religions and non-Christians and, and partnering with other Christians as well in this fight. And finally, we must stand out. What do I mean by that? Look, we, the church, right? The series is called Be the Church. We, the church, must start to act like the church. We must commit ourselves to living out the gospel of reconciliation day by day, circumstance by circumstance, relationship by relationship, community by community, believing that God has the power and the sovereignty to open the eyes of the blind and break the chains of those who are held in bondage. And so the challenge for us is that we today would be the church. Church is not a meeting you go to. Church is a people that we are becoming. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me?